Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Welcome back. It's always good to have you here. I think I have a great lineup for this week. It's funny how quickly you all have picked up on on the format of the podcast that Demetria is going to talk about four different things. And if enough people want her to talk about them, she'll probably address them. So you have been tagging and DMing and emailing and kindly, helpfully hinting and suggesting gentle reminders that I should talk about certain subjects. So some of them I address on social media. Other ones I say, the big ones that I think need a little more space um, to get into, I say for the podcast. This week, we'll be talking about uh, Jesse Smollett, his attack in Chicago, homophobic and racist attack. I I feel terrible for him because everyone and their mother tagged me in the Washington Post story about B. Smith. If you haven't been keeping up with this story, B. Smith, model, restaurateur, turned lifestyle guru. She's also a television host. She had a magazine. Very, very successful woman, um, often referred to as the Black Martha Stewart which I wouldn't take as a compliment because I think calling black people the black version of a more successful white person is just weird. But it is a convenient shorthand to describe what she did when she was in better health. Unfortunately, B. Smith, in 2014, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She was about 65 at the time. She and her husband, they wrote a book about their battle with, uh, with the diagnosis. He is her primary caretaker then and to this day. Uh, my grandmother had Alzheimer's before she passed, and it's a really, really, really hard disease, and it's really hard on your family. So fast forward, the Washington Post did a story earlier this week about B. Smith and her Alzheimer's and about her husband and his new girlfriend, his his white live-in girlfriend. And people are, are pissed. Many of you tagged me and, and had very unkind words, and you wanted me to discuss the story. I think people expect me to condemn it. And um, parts of it, yes. All of it, no. But we'll get to that later in the podcast. We're also going to talk about the Finding Neverland documentary that just aired at Sundance about Michael Jackson and his alleged abuses of, of children. I have not seen it. I did not attend Sundance, but I have several friends who did. And I've been reading the, the reports from journalists who, who viewed the film. It's disturbing. So I heard. A really good friend saw it and, you know, we had a private text conversation, so I won't give you the nitty gritty on her background because it's a name you would know. And she was like, D, like, it's bad. And I was like, okay, scale it for me, like comparing it to surviving R. Kelly, like better, worse. And she was like, much worse, much, much, much worse, if nothing else, because Michael Jackson is part of the cultural fabric of our childhoods. If you grew up in the 80s, Michael Jackson is his music, his videos, his imagery are tied to some part of of your childhood. I can tell you where I was when Thriller debuted. I had a Michael Jackson doll. Like now that I'm thinking about it, it's all starting to come back. The other thing she said made the documentary so damning was the ages of the kids. R. Kelly's youngest victim, alleged victim, was what, 14? With Michael Jackson his victims, alleged victims that are that are seen in the film are are were at the time of, of their alleged abuse, seven and ten. You're talking about little kids, teeny tiny kids. So, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And finally, we're going to talk about Kamala Harris again. 
I swear to you, when I started this podcast, I did not intend to become a political commentator. But it just so happens that I start this podcast and then there's all this this rumor mill brewing about this black woman who's going to run for president. And so I, I think it would be an oversight not to to follow her campaign and talk about the issues that, that come up around her as a black woman about a black woman. So first up, Jesse Smollett, that attack. Oh, my God. Yesterday, I was scrolling on Instagram and I saw so many pe- people had pictures of Jesse. And I don't watch Empire anymore. I watched the first season, but it was it was just too much plot for me. So I saw all these people posting pictures. I assumed he had received an award of some sort or that, I don't know, the new seasons of Empire had been announced. Maybe his character did something crazy on the show. And then my mom, because my mom bonds with me by texting me news stories and things that she thinks that I should talk about for my podcast, even though she doesn't listen to it. It's a whole nother story. So my mom sent me the news story saying that Jesse Smollett had been attacked. He arrived in Chicago where the show is filmed late Monday night. He was said he was hungry. He ran out to Subway around 2 a.m. to get something to eat. On his way back to where he was staying, two men approached him. And one yelled, aren't you that F-bomb from Empire? So the two men, and they keep being referred to as two men. So I assume they were white because anytime the the attackers are black or Latino or Asian, then they make a point to mention it. According to published reports, the men attacked him. They put a noose around Jesse's neck. They poured bleach on him while they beat him. After they beat him up, one of the men yelled, this is MAGA country. MAGA, MAGA, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's the stupid slogan, that Trump's stupid slogan, make America great again. Jesse takes himself to the hospital where he's diagnosed with a fractured rib. There's a picture of him that's floating around the internet where it seems like he was on a FaceTime call with Lee Daniels and one of them screenshotted it, probably Lee Daniels, and he uploaded it to his stories, I think. Jesse has a gash on his face. One side of his um, face looks swollen from the attack. I just feel terrible. I feel absolutely terrible for him. The the injuries, you know, fractured rib isn't the end of the world. It hurts painful, but it's not the end of the world. The gash on his face will heal quickly enough. Sure, if it's scarred, they can cover it with makeup so it won't affect his career. But more than anything, I can't imagine what he's feeling to be treated like that, to be attacked that way and over something that you have no control over, your race and your your sexuality, just trying to process that someone would hate you that much just for existing. Physically, I'm sure he'll recover quickly, but the, the emotional toll of that will probably sit with him for a while. So I really, I just, I feel awful for him. Police are calling it, calling his um, his attack a possible hate crime, which I'm, I'm like, well, how is it possible? Like, what do you need to know to move it from a possible to like definitive when you're using nooses and, and homophobic slurs while, while you beat someone and, and pour bleach on them? That sounds like a hate crime to me. And I know the definition of hate crime varies from state to state, as does the punishment for a hate crime. But I did. Look up what constitutes uh, a hate crime in the state of Illinois, and it is defined as, as, quote, a crime in which someone assaults, batters, or commits aggravated assault against another because of his or her 
race, color, creed, religion, ancestry, gender, sexual orientation, physical or mental disability, or national origin of another individual or group. That sounds about like what happened to Jesse. So I guess the police just need to do a full investigation before they make a firm declaration. I read today, though, that they're having problems finding any footage of the attack. Apparently, at the part of the city that he was in, it's a a place where they have like a lot of private cameras. They can find a video of, of Jesse inside the subway, but they're not finding video of the two attackers, not even of the attack, but they're just not seeing the attackers on on camera that shows the men, which is curious. It's not lost on me at all that people are starting to question Jesse's story about what happened. I am going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think it would just be complete lunacy for him to to lie about something like this. He doesn't strike me as that attention-hungry kind of celebrity. If something like this happened to Tyrese, I'd be like, well, I don't know. He got a known history of lying about shit. And he's thirsty for attention. So I would be like, I don't know. I got to sit this one out. I'm going to reserve my outpouring of sympathy because, girl, I just don't know. Because Tyrese, he's being more stable now. But there was a time where he definitely was not. Unless it is proven otherwise, which I really don't expect that it will be. I will continue to extend my thoughts and prayers to he and his family. I do hope that his alleged attackers are found and, and brought to justice. Now, for the story you've all been waiting for. <laughs> no less than 70 people sent me emails, DMs, tagged me. Like, y'all really want me to address this. And I'm pretty sure I'm not going to deliver the perspective that you want. B. Smith. Washington Post does this story earlier in the week about B. Smith, the black Martha Stewart. She married this guy named Dan Gatsby, 1992. It was the height of her fame. She definitely had the restaurants when she met him because they met at her restaurant in New York. She's a beautiful woman, still a beautiful woman, even well into her 60s. Dan's a few years younger than her, nothing significant, maybe three, maybe four years, something like that. Nice looking guy, really nice looking guy. Looks better now than he did when he was in his 30s. B. Smith has Alzheimer's. He is her, her primary caretaker. For the last, I would say, few months, maybe three tops, people have been talking about this story on Facebook. It first came to my attention in a blended family group. Somebody in the group follows Dan on Facebook. He posted a picture of himself out to lunch with friends and both his wife and his girlfriend were present at the table. I think that's probably largely where my opinion on this became formed. The Washington Post story just sort of reiterated it. A reporter goes out to the Hamptons to see what's going on. She interviews B. Smith as as best she can. She interviews Dan and she interviews his girlfriend, the mistress, Alex. The reporter asked, like, she was like, well, sir, how would you describe this arrangement? And he was like, oh, hey, it's like this is us and modern family came together. Sir. Jack and Randall Pearson would not approve of this shit. Kevin might. The mistress has a room in the house, which I was like, wait, what? 
like a room in the house. I'm like, so do you live there, ma'am? Like, I, I feel a way about her even visiting there. I definitely feel about a way about her living there. So Dan and B. Smith have been married for, at this point, 26 years, right? I, I don't know the, the economic arrangement of their marriage, if it was our money situation or if it's his money and her money. But nobody really knows where, where Dan's money came from. Because when it's described, like, you know, B. Smith and what she did, like, it's she, she had a restaurant and she had magazines and she had her own cookware line and she was an ex-model. And, you know, there's a lot of slash, slash, slash. And people know her as a successful businesswoman, a mogul, if you will. Dan is described as he executive produced the Essence Awards once. Since then, there's no, there's been no mention of business activity from him. So while they are a married couple and it is their money, most of the money, I would imagine, was made from the enterprises that B. Smith built before she met him. Now, she may have continued to build after him. I think I read an interview once where he said that he helped her get the TV show that she wanted. I ain't going to say the man ain't do shit. But the resume is looking like he was a house husband. Just like if we were talking about a man who was the big earner and his wife, I would not diminish the role of, of a wife. They don't have children, though. You just weren't working? Like, I'm just, I don't, I don't know what Dan was doing. And really, that just makes the sketchy situation sound sketchier. It looks like not just that you didn't pull your weight, but that you're living well, you and your new chick, off of the funds that your wife provided. That ain't right. To credit, he has been taking care of her. He has been her caregiver for the last four years, which he should be doing as a spouse, as a partner. That's that's part of what you sign up for. When you take the vows, I just don't like the idea of him having his mistress living in his marital home. Like you got B. Smith sleeping in one bed and you hitting it from the back in another. Sir, that's you not. That's not right. That's not right. If you want to date, if you need an outlet, you need you need emotional needs. You need to have adult conversation. You need sex. Like I completely get that. I understand that. But she got to stay in her own house. You could go visit her. When she come to visit you, she got to get a hotel. When you need to go see her, you need to go out on a date. Taking your wife who doesn't know that she's in the world out on a date with your mistress? Absolutely not, sir. It's distasteful. Actually, it's disrespectful. I know you got needs. Allow your wife to keep her dignity. And then you need to stop talking about this shit on Al Gore's internet. This is some clown shit. I can't really figure out why he decided to publicize this because he knew people weren't going to like it. And then he seems very angry that people have judgment for it, which I'm like, did you think people were going to like it? And I think in some twisted way, it's an attempt to be seen finally because you married this woman who was a superstar and you never became anything more than kind of Mr. B. Smith. You're the guy that married B. Smith. If, if you want to be known for your own accomplishments, then you have to accomplish something, which it doesn't seem that he did. And I find this is something that the male spouses of very popular women 
tend to get overshadowed and their egos get the best of them. Like I was watching one of the Whitney Houston documentaries the other day. Actually, any movie about Whitney talks about it. But how Bobby Brown used to do crazy shit, like all the arrest or the public cheating, like all of that stuff was to get his name out there because he was tired of playing second to his much more famous wife. And so he would do things to be noticed where he would take center stage. And I feel like this is a a variation of that. Like he wanted to be known for something else other than B. Smith's husband. Now your name is out there. Like we know you're Dan, but now you're known as the jackass who's killing B. Smith's legacy, which, you know, is worse than just being like the loving, supportive husband. The idea of him dating I don't take an issue with being a caretaker to someone battling any disease, but especially Alzheimer's is it's like you're living in crazy town. My grandmother had it. And this is not something I usually talk about. When my grandfather died, my grandparents had been married 60 some odd years. They were living together in a nursing home. That was their choice. My parents lived in Maryland. My mother is from Detroit, where, where they were living at the time. And they didn't want to move to Maryland. They were no longer, to, no longer able to take care of themselves. And so they wanted to move into a nursing home. So my grandfather passed away. And my mom called me. I was at Bed Bath & Beyond. I just moved into a new apartment and I was buying plates. And my mother called me, my cell phone. And I answered and she said, he's gone. My grandfather died. So found a plane ticket, got on a plane, went to Detroit the next day, met my dad there. Get to the nursing home to see my grandmother. I'm sitting on the bed where my grandfather usually would have been. So now it's, you know, two beds and only one occupant in the room. And my grandmother keeps asking, where's my honey? That's her name for my grandfather. And she'd been informed countless times that he had passed away and I just arrived I didn't know so I look at my mom my mom's like tell her and I was like what so I tell her and I was like grandma you know grandpa passed away and her face broke like she was hearing it for the first time and because she has Alzheimer's she was so fast forward maybe like four or five days later it's a funeral my grandfather was a pastor of a really big church I was charged with taking care of my grandmother for the day. My parents are running around attending to logistics and and greeting people. I'm sitting in the second row of the church in the center, sitting directly in front of the casket with my grandfather laying in it. It's draped in purple and black because, again, that's that's those are the colors for when the pastor of a church dies. My grandmother turns to me and she's not really sure who I am. She just knows that I'm a friendly face and I'm nice. So she turns to me and she says, a pastor died. And I say, yeah, a pastor died. Then she asked me, who is it? I don't lie. So I say, that's your husband. And she kind of looks over and she was like, Mm-mm. this was like 2003, I would say 2003, 2004. Her mind had gone back to 1960s at that time. She could tell you about something that happened in 1960, like it just happened earlier that day. She could tell you what the weather was. She could tell you what she was wearing. She could tell you what whoever else there was wearing. Crystal clarity, right? But 
couldn't keep what was happening in front of her in her mind for, I would say, no more than 30 seconds. I told her, I was like, no, that's your husband. I'm like, that's, that's Obi. And she said, that's my husband. And I say, yeah. And I was like, he passed away. And she said, okay. And she said, well, I guess I should go up there and see him. We'd taken her to the funeral home to view the body the day before. We didn't know how she was going to react because, again, Alzheimer's. So we wanted her to have the moment of saying goodbye for our sanity. But we didn't know how she would react in public. So we did it privately. So she says she wants to go up there to say goodbye to her husband. She starts standing up like, what am I going to do? Stop her? I follow her to the the casket and she looks in and she looks at me and she looks back and she says, who is this? Just in the time that we'd gone from the pew, second row, down the pew to the front of the church, again, second row, to the casket in the middle, she had forgotten the conversation that quickly. The whole church is watching So I tell her again, I said, this is your husband. This is Obi. He passed away. I don't know if I needed to add that because we're in front of a casket, but I did. And she says, my husband? And I say, yeah. And so she looks in and she says, yeah, we had good times. Hmm. And then she wants to be taken back to her seat. And so I take her back to the seat and we sit down and in my head, I'm about to lose it. And then she turns to me again and she says, who's in the casket? A pastor? Like, (sighs) I give you that example because that's what Dan is dealing with. B. Smith is still alive in, in physical form, but the person that she is, is not there the way she's described in this Washington Post article, B. Smith is not someone that her husband can hold a conversation with or have an emotional connection with or can make love to. She's not in a a place to give consent. He's a 64 year old man. Life expectancy is what, like 80? Is he supposed to spend the next 15 years with no one? I think that's cruel. I think that's a cruel expectation. And I totally understand. Like, you know, you take your vows and you say in sickness and in health and until death do we part. And it sounds romantic when you say it. And I think when people say it, they mean it. But when the reality of it is sitting right in front of you, it's asking too much for one person. To be her caregiver? Absolutely. He totally should. That's what you signed up for. You want somebody to do the same for you. But to take a vow of, of, of celibacy and a vow of loneliness for, for the rest of his days, however long they might be, it's not right. And it's a too high expectation for people to put on him. I'm not mad that he's dating. I think he needs to learn what some goddamn discretion was. Clearly that man ain't pledged near organization. Discretion is like the first thing they teach you. I know because I tried to pledge. Brooklyn chapter. They ain't want me. Anyway. Um... <laughs> But yeah, you have problems that you've completely asked for, sir. All these people judging you, like you asked for this. You put it out there because no one was checking for him, which I think is why he put it out there. He wanted to be checked for. So I hope you're happy. So this Michael Jackson documentary, Finding Neverland, 
four-hour documentary about two boys, now men, who say Michael Jackson molested them, one when he was seven, the other when he was 10 or so. It hasn't aired publicly yet. It's supposed to air on HBO this spring, but it did air over the weekend at Sundance. From what I've read, people who went to see it are were fucked up afterwards. They had a therapist on call in the lobby for people who couldn't handle it, and a lot of people could not. They had a break between parts one and two, because again, four hours, and people had to leave. Unfortunately, I was not at Sundance, so I didn't get a chance to view the film for myself. I mentioned earlier that a couple of my friends were able to view it. One of them, really good friend, she said she found it very convincing. She said of the film, quote, it unravels our childhoods. And, and after she saw it, she, she felt betrayed because she was one of the many people that thought of Michael Jackson as childlike. And she never thought that he would hurt anyone. And yet he allegedly did. She said it was worse than, than R. Kelly for her because she felt, quote, like Michael Jackson is the fabric of our culture. I touched on this a little bit at the beginning of this episode. You can't talk about the 80s, the early 90s, without talking about Michael Jackson. One of my earliest memories is the debut of the Thriller video. I was in my parents' friend's basement. They had a kid that was maybe like six or nine months older than me, and then a daughter who was a couple years younger than me. I had to be about four or five, but we were playing at this um, this little basketball set in, in their basement. And everyone was there for the specific purpose. Like they gathered together because it was this TV event and they'd thrown like a little party to watch the debut of this thriller video. I remember the video came on and I was crying because I was scared of the monsters. I remember a few years later I think it was a VHS tape I was watching or maybe a re-airing of Motown 25 and it's that very famous performance where I think Michael Jackson does the moonwalk for the first time I remember watching that as a kid and thinking it was like magic like he was unreal like it was impossible for a human person to do that I picked up the phone and I called the operator and I wanted her to connect me with Michael Jackson because I wanted her, I wanted to ask him to teach me how to do what he did. Michael Jackson was just like such a huge, huge, huge deal, you know? And he was a little off. He used to walk around with like the chimp on his side. If you think back on it now, like that's weird. But back to the actual documentary. Apparently, part one of this documentary is really, really bad. Like some of it, when I was going, when I was putting together notes for this podcast, I was like, I don't feel comfortable reading this out loud. It's it's describing sexual acts or rape between an adult and a child. Just it, it was too much for me. It, it was too much for me. So I imagine it would be, it, and my boundaries are, are pretty far out. So I imagine it would be too much for you as well. IndieWire did a in-depth review of the documentary and they talked about what I hope are the most disturbing details. Because if it gets any more disturbing than that, I may not be able to watch it. I will tell you that the, the IndieWire reporter concluded, quote, you'll never listen to Michael Jackson the same way again. In fact, you may never listen to Michael Jackson again at all. I can give you a few of the less disturbing details. 
Jackson allegedly had a mock wedding ceremony with one of his victims. The guy still has the ring. Allegedly, Michael Jackson had an elaborate sound system of bells at Neverland Ranch so that he would hear anyone coming and make sure that no one was going to walk in on him when he was abusing children. And because the the inevitable question, since we're talking about kids, is is where are their parents? Like, how did all this happen to a seven year old and a ten year old? Like, why wouldn't their parents be present when they were with this this grown man? The parents apparently play a really big part in the film, and they were opening up their house. So I think in most people's minds, you would think that like, oh, the kids were going to Neverland and they were lured by like the toys and the animals and the chimp and childlike Michael Jackson and his superstar status. But Michael Jackson would sneak out of his own house to go visit the parents in the suburbs and he would stay over with the children at the homes of the parents and they would they would do sleepovers where Michael Jackson would sleep in the bed with their seven or 10 year old child in what world is a grown-ass man sleeping with my kid I can't think of of any circumstance where that would be acceptable I wish you could see my face right now this is one of the times I should have taped something for video like I just I just remember that Martin Bashir interview that Michael Jackson did and I watched it initially like I just moved to New York and I didn't have cable so I went to the gym And it was a two hour interview and I was on the treadmill the whole time because I could do that at 23. It just like walk or run for two hours. And it was just like nothing was a pastime. But I did that to watch the interview after work because I didn't have cable. There's a specific part in the documentary. Where he talks about twice, actually sleeping in the bed with kids. And this is 10 years after he was first accused of having inappropriate relations with children he settled out of court on that case for I think it was 18.5 but in this documentary 10 years later he still talks about sleeping in the bed with kids and he was like oh it's innocent and he's like who's the Jack the Ripper in the room like what's gonna happen like what would I do like no no it's just so innocent and he's talking in this you know this this childlike voice and he looks you know how Michael Jackson looked he looked like a figurine he was he was porcelain he said that he had vitiligo and then he has doll hair he he looks like a a child's toy and then he speaks with this this very high voice which if you heard him sing as a child like that man has a soulful voice like how is your voice deeper when you're seven than it is when you're 44 which he is at the time of this interview where he's talking about sleeping in the bed with children and how innocent it is. And I'm like, we just as a culture turned a blind eye to that foolishness and fuckery. We didn't really say like, this must stop. This is not okay. There was no mute Michael Jackson hashtag like there has been in recent times for R. Kelly. The culture was different. After he said that, I just, I never really looked at at Michael Jackson the same. I'm going to reserve my opinion about the film until I have actually seen it. I think that's only fair. But I will say for now, it ain't looking good, Chief. So last, but certainly not least, but most often, because I keep talking about Kamala Harris. She had both a respectable and ratchet week. She did a kickoff for her campaign in Oakland. 
Part of the reason her rally in Oakland was such a big deal is because President Obama also did a rally in Oakland at about this same point in his campaign. People were watching Senator Harris's rally very closely to see if she was able to draw Obama numbers. He had about 13,000 people at his rally, I read, and she pulled 20,000 confirmed folk out for, for her rally, which good for her. There's been a significant amount of negative talk about her since she announced she was running. But it's not lost on me that at this same point in, in Obama's election cycle, people really couldn't see him going all the way to the Oval either. So I'm taking a lot of what's said about her as, as a grain of salt at this point. No one could see Obama winning, and, and he did, twice. So I think she's off to a good start. If you're a, a Senator Harris supporter, that's, that's great news for you. She also had a good town hall. In, in Iowa, which was on CNN, and, and more good news for her. It got really good viewership. CNN said it was the most watched cable news single candidate election town hall ever among their, their key demo of 25 to 54. It pulled almost 2 million viewers, which is a 75% gain over the prior town halls that CNN has done. So that's great. I did watch her, her town hall. I was able to catch it on YouTube a couple days after, after it aired on CNN. I thought she did well. She's a solid candidate. She didn't fumble anything. She also didn't make a great impression. She was solid. That's, that's really what I could give her. I will say that she's a politician through and through. She's very shrewd. She's very well-versed in talking and sounding well, but not really saying much of anything. That's the nature of the job. You know, obviously a town hall. So people from the audience asked her a lot of questions and she just she answered, but she didn't really answer the question because most people wanted to know, like, well, what are your solutions for? I don't know, going up against Trump. What are your solutions for? I don't know, criminal justice reform. What are your solutions for health care? And so she would very much tell people like what her thoughts were, what her platform will be, what her outlook and perspective are. But she didn't really have answers for how she planned to to do any of the things that she was advocating for. The first question of the night was about where we've descended to in this country in terms of, of race and, and LGBT issues. She acknowledged very easily that there was a problem from that trickled from the top down, but she didn't really have an action plan. Without a plan, you're just talking. But it's really early in the campaign cycle. Like I was thinking about this the other day, and I don't know why, but I just never realized how long the election cycle is. Like the campaign has already begun, but we don't vote until November 2020. So it's almost like, what, a year and 10 months out? So that's a really long time that, that people are going to be on the, the campaign trail if they're able to you know, get the funding and the votes that they need to stay in the race. The second question addressed a topic that has been widely discussed about Senator Harris, mainly her, her record as attorney general and as a prosecutor. She's been, she's been criticized very heavily for that. And her response was that she's really proud of, of her record as attorney, as both as attorney general and as a prosecutor. She didn't speak so much about the things that she's been criticized about, more about the violent crimes that she's prosecuted, that she's worked tirelessly to 
to reform the criminal justice system. She mentioned that she'd implemented programs to train officers about implicit bias, that she wanted them to wear body cameras. She implemented one of the first programs for reentry for offenders. She mentioned that she was personally opposed to the death penalty. Something that's come up a lot is she's been accused of opposing a bill to investigate police shootings. The moderator specifically asked her about that, and she said she didn't do it. She also pointed out a bill that she had in the Senate that would get rid of the the cash bail system. She pointed out that it was an issue as much of of criminal justice as economic justice. But I think a lot of people heard about an example of this story for the first time with the documentary about Khalif Browder. He was a young guy in New York, black guy from the Bronx. He was a teenager, so I want to say like 16 or so. He was accused of stealing a backpack, had some electronics in it, I think, he didn't have money to to get out on bail. So he ended up sitting in Rikers Island, which is notoriously dangerous. But he ended up being at Rikers Island for three years, two of which he served in solitary confinement. When this kid finally gets a court date and he's not convicted of anything, he's just there because he can't afford bail. So he gets out of jail and two years later, he commits suicide. Who knows what happened to that poor kid when he was in prison? And maybe that was part of the documentary. I couldn't watch it. I was like, I can't watch another another story about like a dead black kid. It hurts every single time. I see my my cousins, my friends' kids. I imagine the young guys that I knew who were 16 and 17 and 18 who did a bunch of dumb shit, but got the chance to grow up and grow out of it and turn into productive members of society because they weren't gunned down. Their lives weren't cut short. So Senator Harris has a bill in the Senate that acknowledges the problems with the cash bail system. And she acknowledges that there is much more work that needs to be done about criminal justice and reform. Sounds good. But I don't think that that's enough to appease her critics because the truth of the matter is that she's saying a bunch of things that are much different from what she's done. That's going to be an uphill battle for her, I think, throughout the campaign. She talked about health care. She wants Medicare for all. I don't know how practical that is. Another question that came up was how would she debate Trump and not get caught up in his crazy, which I think that's a big concern for a lot of people. The key thing for me is, is, who can beat Trump? That's really all I want. Like, who can get Trump out the White House? Like, most people are more qualified than Trump. I really feel we can't do any worse than him. Like, he's the bottom of the barrel. I just want somebody who can who can defeat him. And she didn't really have an answer for that. She was like, you know, I'll come with integrity and truth and I'll have concern beyond my personal issues, which, again, improvement. But People think Trump is an idiot, which to some degree he is, but he's also a very shrewd man. Like there were a ton of people who were running for president with Trump, tons of Republicans. Like I remember there was a debate and there were like all those people on the stage and he plucked them off one by one by one by one by one, like career politicians. And then he goes up against Hillary Clinton, who's, you know, a politician through and through one of the best. And he bests her. So he is a fool, but he's a crafty mofo. Is Senator Harris somebody who could go up against him? Maybe.
midway through her town hall, she seemed to get comfortable. She gave you just a, a little bit of a, a bonics, just a, a hint of black girl sass. And I was like, if you could figure out how to activate your full black girl superpowers, like I know you're only half, but if you could, if you can activate a full black girl superpower moment, get your, get your magic all wound up in your wand, she might be able to go toe to toe with Trump. She's obviously a very intelligent woman, but you got to be able to do like a, some good shade, light shade, but, but impactful shade. I think she may be able to do so. Like, I totally believe like black girls have superpowers. I mean, still human and such, you know, still break, bend and cry. I think she might be able to take him, but it's going to be very hard for her. Like she can't do angry black girls. If she could activate a little highbrow Southern shade, like she might be able to pull something off. We'll see. I liked what I saw. I wasn't, you know, wowed, but there's enough here that I feel like I need to keep tuning in to see a little more. I'm trying to think what other issues came up. Oh, someone did ask her if, um, you know, the popular argument, which I've had myself. People say that a, a male nominee would have a better chance of beating Trump than her. It was a guy who asked and he wanted to know what her response was to that. She gave a very politician, optimistic answer. She was like, I feel like the American voters are smarter than that. Are they? You got more faith than I do, sis. Because we elected Trump. I'll tell you what didn't come up at her rally or her town hall. And this is where we get ratchet. Is her previous relationship with the former mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown. Former mayor Brown has a weekly column with the San Francisco Chronicle. And last weekend, he wrote an op-ed, which was entitled, Yes, I Dated Kamala Harris. So what? I only bring this up because it's picked up steam since he wrote the article. Since Senator Harris announced she was running for office, there have been rumors that Senator Harris slept her way to the top. That she had this boyfriend, the former mayor, who put her on. And that's how she was able to kickstart her career eventually getting to prosecutor, attorney general, the Senate, and then now running for the Oval. <sighs> there's, there's a mixed truth in it, according to, to Brown's essay. And according to Mayor Brown's essay, he and, and Kamala did date. It was over 20 years ago. He says that while he was dating Kamala Harris, I want to say he was 60 at the time. She was 29 going on 30. He admits that he may have, quote, influenced her career. He says that he appointed her to two state commissions when he was the assembly speaker in San Francisco. And he says that he that he helped with her first race for a district attorney. He adds that he's that he's helped plenty of people, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Governor Gavin Newsom, Senator Dianne Feinstein and a host of other politicians. So it wasn't just like he did this one favor for his then girlfriend. He was like, I, I help tons of people. This is kind of what I do. He's been highly praised and highly criticized for it. I should point out that the two positions that he is speaking of that he helped her attain were 
the California Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board. That's a mouthful. And then the other was the Medical Assistance Commission. These are both jobs that he helped her get in 1994. Why are we talking about this shit? Like, seriously? She doesn't even make any reference to these jobs. I've not heard Kamala Harris say one single word about the California Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board or the Medical Assistance Commission. I don't know. I just kind of feel like everybody gets a kickstart somewhere. And this may or may not go over well. But if you're 30 years old dating a 60-year-old man, like you're not dating him for his physical and sexual appeal. If you date a 60-year-old man and all you leave that relationship with is is wet panties and an empty pocketbook, you're stupid. She got a kickstart to her career. Good for her. You played the game well. If you're going to date an old-ass man, you should get some money and some connections out of it because that's what they're good for. Don't be like, oh, he took me here. He took me to a fancy restaurant. Fancy restaurant, don't pay no bills. It's a cute look. They didn't even have Instagram then, so it was only you looking. That relationship was an investment. Look. I personally am not a tricking type of chick. That's that's not my thing. If I can't make it myself, if I can't ask my daddy for it, I just don't need it. For the record, years ago when I was on that that stupid reality show, I said something about like, and I was like, yeah, I have my dad's credit card. I would just like people to know I have it in case of emergency. I don't actually use it. Like I used to see people be like, oh, that's how she funds her lifestyle. That's how she gets her trips. That's how she, you know, buys her dresses. No. I have it in case of emergency. My mother had the same thing from her father until he passed away. I don't know anyone who doesn't have their dad's credit card if their father's alive. I don't know anyone who doesn't take money from their dad if their father's alive. That's kind of what dads do for their adult daughters if they can. Like, that's the goal. I got in so much trouble for saying that, but whatever. I say all that to say she she took the cards that he dealt and turned that shit into a good winning hand a couple times see if she could do it one more again but that's what you're supposed to do she leveled up off the relationship good for her you should leave people better than where you found them and so now we have to talk about this part of it which i don't want to oversell this because it's weak tea so he writes this piece yes kamala harris and i dated 20 years ago over 20 years ago it would happen that said sir was a married man then And now he and his wife got some arrangement that ain't for me to understand. I don't get it. He's had multiple public relationships. He is still married. He's been married. I want to say since like the 1950s, like he was married before Kamala Harris was born. Just to put this all in perspective. He's been separated from his wife since I don't want it. What? 81. They wanted them old couples that don't want to be together, but also don't believe in divorce. So they just live separate lives and then show up for special occasions. There is an excerpt in Willie Brown's book where he talks about his family dynamic. At some point while he was dating Harris, he was running for a high profile office. A columnist in San Francisco for a well-known paper speculated that his relationship with Senator Harris was serious that he would marry her. In the book, the mayor tells this story about how his wife, upon hearing from one of her friends that her husband might marry this woman, 
basically said that she was the dalliance of the time and she might be hanging out with him and entertaining him. But come his inauguration day for his new job, it might have been mayor now that I think about it, but whatever the new job was, but she was like, come his inauguration day, his wife said that she, the wife, would be the bitch holding the Bible. And that did come to pass. He um, allegedly broke up with Senator Harris right before his inauguration day. And his wife was holding the Bible for him when uh, when he moved into his his next chapter. But again, week T, you tell me you and your wife were over in June, but you started dating this chick in February. Well, hey, we got a scandal if the story comes out in September. But sir is out here making public announcements of like, yeah, I used to date her. So what? I was like, sir, you're just trying to claim a piece. You know, she's she's running for office. She's you know, she's still a cute looking woman. He said that people had been calling his office and that they wanted clarity on what their the nature of their relationship was and blah, 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 blah. But I was like, really, sir, you sounded real like the game and Ray J talking about Kim Kardashian. That was some real like, yeah, I hit it. So. like who cares I told you it's week four it's damn near water you talking about I hit it 25 years ago sir bye get out of here with that water that ain't even tea maybe that's why nobody brought it up but I do feel if we got to the point in the campaign where it was Senator Harris up against the orange president I feel like his shady ass would say something about it like in the middle of a debate remember that debate he had and he had Clinton's mistresses sitting up in the front row when he was debating Hillary. That's some Lord have mercy. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary people. I don't want to leave anybody out. I want all people to feel included. That is our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you need some light shenanigans and, and quiet kikis during the week, you can follow me on any of my social media sites at Demetria L. Lucas. You can also go to my blog, Demetria L. Lucas.com. I have posts on Instagram and my blog. If you want to discuss any of the content that we've talked about today, I imagine that you'll have many things to say about B. Smith and maybe Michael Jackson, too. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear your feedback. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you give me a subscribe. And our 90 days are not up. So I will see you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.